I have uh, been a friend of PJ's, and they're, through him, sort of vicariously a friend of yours um, for quite some time, uh, uh, years now. And uh, it's, it's my joy to be here with you, to see you face-to-face, uh, to be able to share this time with you, and to sit behind what can only be described as a gargantuan and solid pulpit, um, the likes of which I have not seen before. Um, so... Um, let, let, let us begin. Uh, what I want to speak uh, to you about this morning um, is going to... The text we'll be, we'll be preaching is from the, the book of Mark. So if you can get your Bibles out, we'll be reading uh, selections from Mark 14 um, on the Pew Bibles, which is what I have right here. It's on page uh, 903, uh, bottom of 902 into 903, and then we'll read a little bit from 904 as well. What we're doing is following Peter uh, on the night when Jesus dies. And so, here we're, we will read, uh, beginning Mark 14, uh, if you're new, uh, the, the, chat, the 14 is the big number, the 20, 26 is the little number, we'll just kind of keep going. Hear the word of the Lord. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, all of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. And now starting in verse 66 on the next page. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, You certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. And then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Now, oh, you have that here? I love that. I say that at my church all the time, and no one says anything. That's like the best. There's a lot of those response things in the Christian church through history, and some of them are just sort of cropped up, and they're just sort of rote repetition. But there's something about saying, this is the word of the Lord, and saying, thanks be to God, that feels really good and right. So that was, that was fun for me. Thank you. Um, I say it internally every time. Eventually, I'll teach my people to do it, too. What, what you have here um, is the story of Peter interwoven in the book of Mark. Um, what you find in chapter 14 is that the story of, of Peter, the story of Judas, and the story of Jesus are all sort of interwoven in a way that you sort of shoot back and forth, almost like a movie. You, you sort of uh, pan over to what's going on with Judas, and then to Jesus, then back to Judas, then to Peter, then to Jesus, then to Peter. And what we've done in our reading is taken out what's happened to Peter and put them together in this chapter. And his story is basically this. Here's his story. He's incredibly confident And then he's incredibly broken down. And then after this chapter, only a few days, maybe some weeks later, you find Peter leading the early church, preaching publicly about Jesus to very powerful people. And what you see here, and what I want to teach this morning, is that what happened to Peter is the pattern of the Christian life. 
It's the pattern we, we walk as we become Christians, and in many ways it's the pattern we walk as we live as Christians. And here's, there's three things, three points. I'm a, I'm a man of threes. I went to Master's Seminary. It's, it's in my blood. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at three things. One, Peter's problem, which is our problem, and that's self-deception. Two, Peter's crisis, which is our crisis, and that's self-awareness. And then three, Peter's resolution, which can be our resolution, which is Christ-awareness. These are the three things we'll do. So, to begin, Peter's problem, which is our problem, self-deception. Now, when you read in that first section, you see that they're saying hymns, they go out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus begins to say, after the Lord's Supper, after singing, Jesus tells them something that's very difficult to hear if you've been close to Jesus for some time as his disciples. He tells them, essentially, you're all going to fall away. You're all going to deny me. You're all going to leave me. And the word fall away essentially means to buckle under your circumstances. In other words, you're not planning on doing this, but when things get hard, it's just going to happen. You're going to fall away. And he knows this because he's read his Old Testament. In Zechariah 13, which he's quoting, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And what what that passage is saying is that God's going to turn to the shepherd at his side, that's Jesus, and strike him in such a way that all of his followers will go their separate ways and he'll be left entirely alone. But Peter speaks up because he is Peter. And what Peter says is, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now, notice, it's very important. The Bible has very specific words, and they're important to pay attention to. Notice what he says. He is not just saying, I am committed to you, Jesus. No, he's saying, I am more committed to you than these guys. Even though they fall away, I won't. Now, why bring up their failures? Why is that something worth talking about here? You know, there are times when my daughter... uh, Back when she was, well, I got four of them, so I can use the youngest one. They all do it. Um, the, uh, my, my daughter, I have a three-year-old now, and every once in a while she'll come to me. She'll waddle up and say, you know, Daddy, Daddy, my sister, the younger sister, my sister is making a mess in our room, but I am not making a mess. <laughs> and so you sort of go, okay. And every time she says it, she's standing up a little bit straighter. Her posture is very good. You know, she feels good about herself. There's a lot of confidence in her gait. What, what's, what's happening in that moment? She's not concerned about the mess, and she's definitely not concerned about me. She's not saying, Dad, I know your love language is a clean room, and, you know, and so I just love you, and I just wanted to make it clean. No, she, she's concerned in that moment about herself and her rank in comparison with, with these other children. See, she's messing it up, but I am not. Do you see how I, how I relate, where I stand in relationship to these other kids in this house? She's concerned with herself, not with me. She is someone who plays cleanly and nicely, and she's convinced about it, and she'll tell you all about it. But in about an hour, she'll make a bigger mess than her sister made ever. Older kids can make bigger messes. This is just how, this is the way of the world. Now, Peter here, in the same way, he's not focused on Jesus, at least not completely. Peter's focused on Peter. He's distinguishing himself from the others. He's declaring, you see, I am more devoted. I am less likely to fall away. And so, Why is he not going to fall away? Well, because I'm better than these other guys. I'm different. I'm convinced, and I'll tell you. But in a few hours, he'll make a bigger mess than any of them. In other words, Peter is self-deceived. He thinks he's something he's not. And it's very important that he defends himself, and he defends the way he thinks of himself. 
Peter's putting himself in this position where I believe I'm this way, so I have to make sure you know I am better. I am more committed. I have to make sure that you validate the way I think of myself. And he infects the others in a sense. You see that, that ends saying, that little section ends, you know, they all said the same. You know, so all of a sudden now they're all saying, well, I'm better than all these people. <laughs> I, I will never leave you too. Even if they all do it, I won't do it. They're all saying it now. And, and, and there's, there's a subtle difference between you're a great leader and I'm a great follower. And they don't notice that difference. And at the end, they all do fall away. And Peter falls away spectacularly. They're all self-deceived. And the Bible would say, so are we, every single one of us. It's part of our condition as humans, the Bible says, that we're self-deceived. That, that sin has this sort of blinding effect on us. It blinds us to what we are really like. And in Jeremiah 17, 9, this is as good a place as any to learn about it, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah is saying the heart is, is two things, sick and tricky. That, that idea of desperately sick is sort of sinful to the point of desperation. It, it means essentially this is medically incurable. The heart is incurable. It's sick. It has these huge problems, but it's also tricky. It deceives you about them. In other words, our hearts are constantly making gigantic messes, but we're convinced we're not messy people. That's not what we really are at our core. We're actually pretty well put together. And we'll, we're convinced, and we'll tell you all about it. And so more of our lives, if you look at yourself, more of your lives are like Peter than you want to admit. More of our lives are are built on self-deception than we we realize. In this day and age, everything, there's been a study on everything, right? Now there's studies about every single thing. You know, do you slip on a banana peel? I don't know, let's do a study. And so, but some of them are actually really fascinating. There are some now, these sort of social studies that look at how people think of themselves, and so here, here's some examples. They call this illusory superiority, which is just fancy academic talk for saying you think you're better than you are. Um, so it's the you think you're better than you are effect. And so they, researchers asked a million high school students, that's a pretty good sample size, a million high school students, how well they got along with their peers. Not one rated themselves below average. As a matter of fact, 60% of them thought they were in the top 10%. 25% thought they were in the top 1%. And so you go, okay, well, high school students, I remember being in high school. I have learned a few things since then, gotten a little more well-rounded. So they moved on to college professors. 2% rated themselves below average. So we're getting a little closer there. We've got 2%. 10% were average. 63% were above average. 25% rated themselves as truly exceptional. One researcher, here's how he summarized it. It's the great contradiction. The average person believes he's a better person than the average person. There was a, a young woman who applied to college, and so she's doing the, the essay questions and these sorts of things. And One of the questions is, uh, are you a leader or a follower? And being a kind of honest person, she, she says, you know, honestly... I'm not really a leader. I don't know if I'm a follower, but I'm not really a leader. I, you know, it's not really one of the things about me. So she wrote her paragraph and said, I'm not really a leader, and you know, submitted it and said, well, there goes that. You know, like, not getting into that school. Well, the big envelope comes back. She got in. And the registrar wrote a note, a, a, like a handwritten note on the top. And it said, congratulations on your acceptance. 1,643 applicants who were accepted 
believe they are a leader. We thought it was incumbent that they should have at least one follower. <laughs> we, we think we're better than we are. And there, I mean, whole books are written. My favorite title, uh, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. Um, that's the title of a book. And it talks about this idea of confirmation bias. It's essentially this idea that when, when you, you look for evidence to back up what you already believe. And so when, someone, when you do something wrong, when you make a mistake, it's complicated. You know, there's a lot of things going on. You were distracted. You had a tough day. When someone else does something wrong, they're just a horrible person. That's why. You know, and so if someone cuts you off on the road, why, why did you cut someone else off? Oh, I didn't check my mirrors. I'm so sorry. It's a one-time thing. Why did that person cut you off? Because they're bad. Like, they're just a bad human being. And this is confirmation bias. And, so, and you see it everywhere. You see it in your own life. You know, it, I was at the supermarket the other day, and they have the gum and the snacks and the magazines. And one of the magazines is I'm you know, putting my stuff on the conveyor belt is uh, you know, 65 photos of stars without their makeup. Why do we do that? Because people buy that. And if you're like me, you're going, oh, I'm above that. You know, I don't know. But then you kind of look over and you're like, man, they let themselves go. You, know, you, just, you just can't not, like, look, there's something we, it's, it's, it's like it's internal to us. Why do we care? Why do you notice about people you know in your life? Why do you notice, oh, you know, they're not as in shape as I thought. They're normally pretty funny, but that, that joke wasn't that funny. No, it's not, yeah. You know, that presentation at work that guy did, that, he's supposed to be this great guy, but that, 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 wasn't, that wasn't all that great. It's pretty average, actually. Why do we notice those things constantly throughout our day? Because like Peter, we're collecting evidence to back up who we wish we were, who we want the world to see. And every time someone does something wrong, it lets you say, see, I'm not like these other people. They're not better than me. My self-deception can go on. I have more evidence now. We want to be pretty good, at least above average. And so we keep collecting this evidence. And that, I mean, just think about your day. What are the ways you compare yourself to other people? And aren't you always looking for the comparisons that make you feel good, not bad? How do you, so how do you tell stories at the end of your day? You know, if you have a roommate or a spouse or something, hey, you know, here's what happened in my day. Do you tell them in such a way that you're always the hero? Do you not lie, but sort of massage them in a direction where you look as good as possible given the facts? You know, when you watch the news, when you read things online maybe, or read the newspaper, do you ever look at the things that are happening and go, well, you know, I, I'm so glad I'm not like those people. Look at those folks. And, and isn't, that, isn't that all of the news these days? Is one people saying, look at those idiots over there, and the people saying, look at those idiots over there. We're, everyone else is the problem. Look at us. We're being better. We're the better version of humanity over here. And what is the Internet, if not the Wild West, of calling other people idiots? Like that, it, at some level, why is all this happening? There's a sense in which at the deepest level of the human being, what sin does is it creates a desperate need for you to compare yourself to others and come out ahead. All you're doing is gathering evidence. And if you've got to call someone else an idiot to do that, well, that's what you've got to do. And so we're always making room for ourselves to be complicated and, and better. We're always making room for ourselves to be the best version of us. That's what we really are. And everyone else, we're making sure they have no room at all. They're the worst version of themselves. Also that we can maintain our self-deception. And the Bible says we're in this position. Everyone is in this position, and we're often blind to it. We just don't recognize it very often because we refuse to see the evidence. We refuse to see the reality in front of us. And that's, it's in the text this happens. Jesus tells Peter, you know, 
Jesus, or Peter tells Jesus, you're wrong. Now, when in Jesus' history with Peter has Jesus ever been wrong about anything? Not a single time. But to Peter, to ha- that need to maintain his self-deception is so strong that he looks at the God of the universe and says, now nah, I'm smarter than you on this one. You're not right here. That's how strong that sin inside is. You can look at God himself and say, no, I think you're wrong on that one. This time I'm right and you're wrong. If God himself says something different. I mean, Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and says, you don't know who you are. You don't see who you really are. And Peter looks back and says what? No, you don't see who I am. God himself can say it and we still won't believe him. That's the human condition. That's how we start. We have these techniques, these ways of spinning things, these ways of rationalizing. It's, it's phenomenal. And all of that you see in the life of Peter right here in the Bible. There's, uh, if you've ever known people, there's a certain set of people who avoid going to the doctor. And, and if, you, if, if you see them, you say, well, why don't, you know, and it, it's almost always someone with this really visible problem. You know, like, yeah, your elbow's the size of a, of a grapefruit. You know, you really should go see somebody about that. You know, it's turning, you know, purple. And they'll say, no, doctors are a bunch of quacks. You know, they, they just want to take my money and, 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 you know, make me buy medicine. And you go, well, maybe. I mean, I know some doctors. They seem nice. You know, they, they seem to be smarter about the human body than you are. Most of them got into medicine to help people, not hurt them. You know, just typically doctors aren't really like that. You really should go. And if you talk to them more, what you realize is underneath all of that, almost always underneath all of that, is the reality. They don't want to go to the doctor because they're afraid something really is wrong. And they have a million reasons to keep from realizing that. And you and I do too. It's scary to go in. It's scary to be honest about who you really are. It's scary to look to someone else and say, you diagnosed me. And we have lots of techniques and lots of opinions to keep us from doing it. And, and there's, let me just briefly, I think it's helpful to go through some specifics here. You know, these, these mechanics, these techniques that we have, because maybe you'll recognize some in yourself, and you see these throughout the Bible, like there are these ways that we sort of get the, the lens off of ourselves and onto others so we can keep up our self-deception. One of them is, is blame shifting. That was like what you see in Genesis 3 in the garden. The very first way of getting rid of, bl- uh, of guilt was blame shifting. So when God says, Adam, what have you done? He says, the woman you gave me to be with, she did it. Notice that's two blame shifts there. It's her fault, and you gave her to me, so it's kind of your fault too. You gave me a defective version, kind of a thing. Like, like what, what you guys, you, know, you, you work together on this. And then she says, well, the serpent you, you, know, you put here, the serpent deceived me and I ate. There's a sense of blame shifting to other people. In other words, when you do something wrong, your immediate reaction, whether it's a small thing or a big thing, is, well, I had a long day and I was really tired and they were being annoying. And, you know, and there's this list of things. What you're basically saying is, my actions shouldn't reflect on me, they should reflect on all them. You're shifting the blame. It's your way of maintaining that, no, I'm really actually better than what my actions would lead you to believe. I'm actually a much better person than how I act. It's because of all of them. That's one way. You might see that in yourself. Another way is, is distraction. This is the Pharisee way. The Pharisees constantly had this set of things they did right. And if you go through the gospel stories, you'll see they're always pointing at them over and over again. I did this right, did this right, did this right. Elizabeth Elliot has a phenomenal story. Um, I, I can't remember. It's about her younger brother. I can't remember his name. But, uh, you know, mommy and daddy made a rule in the house where the kids all, when they played with things, they had to clean them up before they moved on to the next thing. Very good rule if you can keep that up. Um, 
And, and so her brother, you know, little Johnny, we'll call him, he spreads out all these cards he's playing with, and then he leaves without cleaning them up. And so mommy and daddy come and see the cards and say, you know, Johnny, where are you? you know, and Johnny had gone and sat down at the piano and is plunking out keys. And they go over to tell him, Johnny, you know, you, you, you've done something wrong. You, you've left these here. And you know what little Johnny says? Mommy, daddy, look, I'm singing hymns to Jesus. There is a way, and it is deeper than we realize, that our obedience is just another version of saying, look, I'm singing hymns to Jesus. Don't look over there. Look at this good thing. We have to be very, very careful that even even our good things aren't used to just make ourselves feel better, make ourselves feel like we can keep up our self-deception. Got to be very careful. And the last one is to minimize this is in many ways what you see you know, sort of in the Gentile nations or in the, the secular people that, that come along. And today it happens a lot as well, which is basically to say, well, it's, it always sounds like this. Well, it's not like I killed anyone. Um, you minimize the things you've done wrong to sort of say, well, those don't reflect on me. I read an article about a mafia hitman um, who, the article is fascinating because the whole time he's saying, I, I'm a pretty moral, self-restrained person. Okay, well, you, people paid you to kill other people. Like, so so the, the, the interviewer is sort of like <laughs> trying to navigate this. And finally they get to it, and, and the mafia hitman essentially says, well, there are like at least three or four times when I convinced my boss to, that there was a better way to handle this than killing a guy. See? I'm one of the good ones. You know, things like, it's not like I'm Hitler. I, be, I bet you even Hitler had a list of reasons why he was a pretty good dude. You know, there's, there's complicated, complicated situations here. I'm just trying to do the best I can with what I got. So for, you see, from the big all the way down to the little, to you and me, there's ways that we minimize, we distract, we blame shift, all in the attempt to keep this going. This is Peter's problem, and it's, it's my problem, your problem. How do you do it? Think about your day. Think about your week. I have a list of my own. What's your list? How do you do it? How do you distract and rationalize and keep away the, the reality of who you are? who God says we are. That's Peter's problem. We think we're better than we are, and, and we'll, we'll tell you about it, just like him. Now, why is that a problem? We've got to be brief here for, for time's sake. Two reasons, um, at least two. One, it's incredibly self-defeating. <laughs> because what happens when you have to do this is your whole life becomes wrapped up in, in, in gathering evidence and keeping the facade going. Your brain and your emotional and psychological energy are all spent on making sure that nothing you did or that happened to you actually ref- makes you look bad. Not really bad. And so that's so much energy spent that you can't actually spend that energy being the person you're, tr- you're trying to look like. In other words, you know, the, the Wizard of Oz had to spend a lot of energy like maintaining the illusion. Didn't have a lot of time to run Oz. And in the same way, we can spend so much time Try, and energy, trying to make this thing work, keep the illusion going, rationalize, whether it's when you're driving on the road or in the supermarket or talking to other people or at work or at home, all this energy to the point where well, now all that energy went there and not to anything actually productive. For example, when you put the work to get in to gather all the evidence that you're a really giving person, you're really generous. And anytime it looks like you're not generous, you're going to find a way to spin that around. No, I, I really am. I'm a pretty giving person. I'm very generous. You're always working on it. You don't have any time to actually become a generous person with that energy. And so, when it comes time to actually be unselfish, those muscles will be incredibly weak. You have very strong self-deception muscles and very weak generosity muscles. 
And all of a sudden, you'll find yourself in crunch time not being generous, which propagates the cycle. Now you have to work harder at looking generous. It's this downward spiral of awful and awful and awful and stress and stress. It breaks your back. And one day, reason two, one day, whether in this life or the next, the self-deception will get exposed. Maybe one day you run out of excuses for who you are. But one day we all stand before God. And God will look at you and me. And if we look at him and we say, I didn't know. I didn't know. I thought I was great. He will, you know what he'll look back and say? He will say, you knew. You knew. You just chose to ignore. You spent all of your energy ignoring, not repenting. It's a problem we have. That's the problem. When it counts, when the pressure's on, you'll crumble and you'll be exposed. And that's what happened to Peter. Jesus was right. You know, shocker, Jesus was right. If you look down at the next passage, so that's, that's point one, the longer one. Don't worry, it's a longer one. P- next is Peter's crisis, which is our crisis. Self-awareness. If that was self-deception, this is self-awareness. As you look at, at, at that chunk of uh, verse 66 through 72, what's happening here is Peter has sort of s- snuck along as Jesus is going off to be crucified. He's at a distance. And the servant girl recognizes him, and you get denial number one. Uh, you know, which, where he says, uh, well, I'm looking in this one, where he says, uh, I don't know or understand what you're talking about, which is basically it's a fancy way of saying, I don't, even, I don't know, I know him so little, I'm not even sure what's going on. I was just here. I'm not, I don't even know what's happening over there. It, it, that, it, it's such a strong denial. And then he moves further away from her, but she keeps talking, so she doesn't stop. And there's denial number two. And then they hear his accent. He's from Galilee. A lot of disciples are from Galilee. And he invokes a curse on himself. He says, I don't know this man you're talking about. The, 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 the idea of uh, cursing, swearing, of invoking a curse is essentially saying, let, let God or in you know, Rome, the gods, uh, judge me if I'm lying. It's, it's our version of, I swear on a stack of Bibles, I don't know him. Do you see how, how bad that is? How, how betraying that is? And the rooster crows, and it says, Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him. Now, that's, it's not because he like forgot, like, oh, that slipped my mind, and now it came back. No, it means he remembered with its full force, with the weight of realization. And he breaks down and he weeps. What happened to Peter here? What happened was he came face to face with who he really was. He became self-aware, and it broke him. And see, why does it break him? Why does he weep? Because you have to grasp how devastating this is. His whole identity, the whole thing he's constructed about being the passionate follower of Jesus is now in pieces on the floor, and there's no way to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. There's no excuse. There's no rationalization. There's no way to make this work for the narrative he has over his life, which is a crazy thing to happen. Everything his life was about, all the work he put into maintaining that image is now gone. And it's not even about other people. It's not as though people saw him, so he's sad. No, he's, he's alone. He's not sitting there saying, well, I'm glad no one's looking. I guess I got away with it. It's something internal that's happening to him. He's weeping because who he was, who he needed to be, who he thought he was in that moment, was now proved to be an entire lie, a total fabrication. He's fallen apart. It's foundation rattling when you're exposed to what you're really like. And some of you had that experience. I remember at one point in my life, I was talking with a good friend of mine, and 
sort of thinking about different areas in my life and, <clears throat> and how, you know, the story's too long to get into, but how, you know, I see some sin there, you know, but there's progress being made, and I think it's, it's, it's going to be okay, you know, it's fine. And I remember sitting talking to him, saying those sorts of things, and he looked at me, the only dear friends have the guts to say this sort of thing. He looked at me and he said, Brian, you, you don't get it. Like, you don't get it yet. Now, those are not magic words. Um, they're pretty simple words. But you know what God does with stuff? It undid me. It was weird. It was not like lightweight, oh, I heard a tough sermon conviction. It was like, I got to get out of the house. I'm kind of freaking out conviction. I see the depth of what I thought, what I had worked so hard to look like, not a big deal, a lot of progress being made. No, it, it, there's things wormed down in my heart. And I said, when I saw it for what it was, it, it, some of you have that experience. Your feet are just firmly in midair. And you, your foundations, the, the bottom has fallen out. And there are times when just the evidence is too overwhelming, when it gets too hard to keep the illusion up even for yourself. And if you haven't had it yet, you will. Is there a rooster crowing in your life right now? That was my rooster. And I had buried it for a long time. I have, ki- I have little kids, and uh, a two-year-old and a three-year-old. And the two-year-old, uh, about 5 a.m., decides that she wants oatmeal every morning. Um, and so I hear, oatmeal, oatmeal. I mean, I don't know. It's the one word she can say very clearly. Oatmeal. Um, and so there's a whole slew of, of discipline options we have. Um, but, uh, but bottom line, you know, between 5 and 6 a.m., I am not the guy that gets up at 5 every morning and gets off to a productive day. It's like, I, you know, I would love to be that guy, but I'm not that person. Um, and so I basically do my best, like a snooze alarm, just ignore it. But about 5.45 every morning, I just can't. Because oatmeal, you do that enough times, and it's just, you can't, you can't go back to sleep. And, and so you get, at some level, but you see, it's funny, you think about from 5 to 5.45, I'm doing my best to bury something that's blaring at me. I'm trying to pretend it doesn't exist so I can just go back to sleep. But I have to get up and face the real world at some point. That's my kid, I've got to take care of her. There are roosters crowing in your life right now that you're trying to press snooze on. The evidence is there, it's kind of blaring. But you've just done your best to try and go back to sleep. Just don't pay attention. Do you see it, it, how the rooster's crowing in your life? And when that happens, when you finally wake up to that and hear it, you have two options. You can either double down. You can say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rationalize this. I'm going to sort of be, be, be more and more divorced from reality. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, but sort of Peter could have done this. He could have said, you know, look, I'm a... I, 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 the conditions weren't right. You know, I would have said I was with Jesus if, maybe if, if there weren't so many people around me. Or maybe he was too close. I was worried that if I got thrown in there, he wouldn't be let go. Or, you know, uh, actually, where are the other disciples? They're not even here. I'm still the best disciple. There's all sorts of ways he could have tried to double down on his little narrative, on his self-deception. But he didn't. You can either double down or you can open up. He said, this is, this is real and I have to pay attention. And a lot of the time, it might involve weeping. It definitely involves you looking at Jesus and saying, I thought I knew myself, but I have to defer to you on this. I'm sorry I've been trying to fake it so long. You know better than me. You tell me what I'm like. You tell me what's real. I can't trust myself anymore. Both options sound pretty bad, frankly. Like, <laughs> they're both unpleasant. 
you know, doubling down means you just get more and more frantic in your life. You're white-knuckling your whole life until you're just so divorced from reality that you're that person you're scared of becoming, which just slowly gets more and more divorced from who, well, how things really are. You're just living in your own little world that everyone else knows isn't real. That doesn't sound very fun. Opening up and realizing that you're not in control of your own life and you don't even really know who you are, that's not fun. But one of those options leads you further away from reality, and the other option, if you understand what Jesus has really done for you, leads you into freedom. That's the last point. Peter's resolution, which can be your resolution and my resolution, Christ awareness. You'll notice, we didn't read all of it, but you'll notice that interspersed in between these two stories of Peter is Jesus in the garden and Jesus on trial. And if you read the commentaries on this, people say that's not by accident. That's not just sort of a, well, I don't know, I just decided to switch back and forth just because. The idea is that people notice Jesus and Peter are both on trial here. And the differences are staggering. It's a total dichotomy. Jesus is attacked by false witnesses and makes a true confession. Peter's attacked by true witnesses and makes a false confession. Jesus is confronted by the most powerful people in Jerusalem, and he stands his ground, quietly no less. Peter's confronted by the least powerful people in Jerusalem, and he buckles under it. For Jesus, everything happens just as he predicted. He said he would go and be mocked and beaten and died, and he did. For Peter, everything happens in contradiction to what he predicted. He said he'd stand up, and he didn't. He fell down. Jesus looks like a defeated Messiah, but it isn't his fault. Peter looks like a defeated disciple, and it's entirely his fault. While, what's happening? While Peter was losing his trial, Jesus was winning his trial. That's what's happening. Peter was standing there for Jesus, and he was failing and denying and falling away. But Jesus was standing there for Peter. Why is he there? It's for Peter. And he was not denying, and he was not falling, and he was not walking away. That's why he was there in the first place. See, why, why, why are we talking about the trial of Jesus in the middle of all this about Peter? Because Jesus was there for Peter. When he was on trial, he's there to claim Peter. He's there to claim you and to claim me. And he said as much. In, in Zechariah 13, what's the context of that quote about striking the shepherd? That passage deals with idolatry, with sinful hearts. And the question is raised, what are we going to do with sin? And what is it, what's the answer? I'm going to strike the shepherd. His followers will be scattered. They'll all fall away. But you see, what's, what's the implication there? This will show them how I will heal all those that fell away. When Peter calls down curses on himself, when he says, may God curse me if I'm lying to you, he's signing up for judgment. But when Jesus goes to the trial and goes to the cross for the wrath of God, he's taking Peter's judgment. Who took the curse for Peter's true identity? Who took the curse for Peter's desperately wicked and tricky heart. Jesus on the cross. He took the wrath. See, what's Peter afraid of? It's fascinating. What's he afraid that's going to happen? What is he afraid is going to happen when he says, yes, I do know him. Yes, I am one of the disciples. He's afraid that they're going to slap him. They're going to pull out his beard. They're going to humiliate him. They're going to beat him. Maybe they'll crucify him. And in that very moment that he's afraid of those things and bailing on Jesus, Jesus is having those things happen to save Peter. In Luke, it says that after the rooster crows, Jesus looks at him. He looks at Peter, and that's when he weeps. Peter remembered 
the words, Jesus knew. In other words, Jesus looks at him and Jesus knows exactly who he's going to the cross for. He's not confused. He sees the Peter who denied him. And he says, I'm still walking forward. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. This is my body broken for you. See, this is the plan. This is the plan. And that's why Peter gets mentioned one more time in this book. In Mark 16, 6, this angel comes. Don't be alarmed. It's after the resurrection. Don't be alarmed, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. Jesus is raised from the dead. And what do the angels say? They say, make sure you get Peter. Don't forget Peter. Why? Because Jesus traded places with Peter. And he traded places with everyone who believed. And when he came back from the dead, he didn't come just for those who only failed a little bit. He came back for those who failed spectacularly. Which means he came back for you. And he came back for me. Don't forget the deniers. Don't forget the faithless. Don't forget the weak ones. Don't forget, the, don't forget all the ones who were so afraid of getting their beards pulled out that they left when I got mine pulled out. Go get everyone. And do you see what that means? See, Peter, in a matter of days then, becomes the leader of the early church, completely restored, better than he was before, and he goes on from being the leader of the church to actually having all the things he was afraid of happening when he denied Jesus. He went on to get imprisoned, to get crucified. He went on to have all those things he was afraid of happen. What changed? How does he go from one to the other? Jesus. He let go of his self-deception. He listened to the rooster. And he admitted it openly. And Jesus looked at him and said, I still die for you. Don't forget Peter. And the same thing can be true for you. That's how you become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is finally saying, I'm putting down all this stressful self-deception I have to keep up over and over and over again, convincing myself that I'm above average, that I'm a leader. And letting it break you to the point where you look and you say, I've got nothing left. And he died for that person. He came for the sick, not the healthy. But you see, it's also how you live as a Christian. What's fascinating about this story is that Peter, the commentators believe Peter's the source for the book of Mark. So Peter's the one making sure everyone hears this story. (laughs) Make sure you know how bad I was. (laughs) Make sure you see it. The old Peter never would have done that. Why can he do it now? Because he became, in in a sense, he became a Christian. In a sense, he became Christ-aware. He was able to say, now that I'm Christ-aware, all these other things can fall off. And that's true for us too. If you live a life worried that if people really knew you, if God really knew you, this whole thing would fall apart. I've got to spin it. I've got to make it work. I've got to make this thing happen. I've got to do it. If that's the kind of life that you live, you're living a slave and enslaved life. But if you open up and look to Jesus and become Christ aware, he says, that person you're trying to run away from, that's the one I died for. That's the one I love. That's the one I accept. That's the one I welcome home. That's the one who, when he comes home to me, the angels rejoice in heaven. I don't have any room for people who aren't real, but for people who are. The fake version of you that you are trying to maintain, I don't have any room for that because it's not a real person. But the person you really are, that's the one I love. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that means, therefore, once you are become Christ-aware, you can actually admit those things. 
the life of a Christian is an open life. A life that's open about sin. How else do you get meek? Like, meek means you just kind of stop caring about yourself and how you look and how important you are. There's no other way to get meek if you've got to maintain this version of you. The only way is to know that that's not what's important anymore, that Jesus is the one who's important. You're Christ aware. You see his love for you. You see him walk to the cross for you. And therefore now, all of a sudden, you can walk into a room and look at other people and not think about how they measure up and how you relate in this sort of new category of people in this room now all of a sudden. And who are we kidding? That happens in church. Now you can just kind of come into a room. It's amazingly freeing. (laughs) You can just walk in and be there. It's wonderful. And you can start thinking about other people and loving them. It's just amazing what this does. You can become the kind of person that's never afraid of being exposed anymore because you've already been exposed and forgiven. Now, one last thing. The question at the end of the day, then, is not, are you worth Jesus? It's, do you want him? The question is, do you want him? Do you want that kind of Christ awareness in your life? He will demand everything, and he will take you places that you didn't think you'd go. But do you want him still? If you want him, he'll take you. It's a joyful and dangerous life being a Christian. There's a lot of risk involved, but there's a whole lot of reward. And that process then, this is the last thing, becomes the pattern for your life. Not just becoming a Christian, but being a Christian. Repentance then becomes a way of life for you. Martin Luther talked about the 95 Theses. The very first one. The entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. And what he's saying then is that repentance isn't something that happens like the three big times you've sinned in your life. It's, it is your life. Every day. What he's saying then is that every day the rooster will crow at you. Even as a Christian. There will always be more self-deception. There's always remaining sin until glory. Every day, there's going to be a little rooster that crows. And in that moment, you have a choice to live like who you were and deny and double down and get stressed out or to live as who you are and admit and look at Jesus and say, oh, I didn't like that that's still in there. You tell me what I'm like. You tell me what to do next. I repent. I want to go with you. These are your options. In Hebrews 4.12 The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A few weeks ago, uh, John preached on uh, uh, Psalm 1, Bible reading, meditation on Scripture. PJ, before that, I believe, preached on prayer. Here's where meditation and prayer come home. To roost, as it were. I just made that one up. That's not bad. Um, When you open your Bibles... Do you know what God is doing? He's talking to you. He's encouraging you. And he's also poking at you. He's saying, here. Here's what I want you to see. Here's who I am and who you are. That's what a quiet time is. Is in many ways opening scripture, meditating. Here, I want you to see this. As a loving father whose son died for you, so you will always be accepted, I want you to see this. And when you read your Bibles, and you see, every day ought to be repentance. Every time you read your Bible, there should be some sense in which, I don't know if I saw that. And if you permit me like one more minute, let me tell you how that works out typically, for me at least. You open your Bible, you read it, and you say to yourself, that did nothing for me. That's usually the opener. If you're different than that, God bless you, but I don't think there are many of you. 
It usually takes four or five reads, maybe eight or ten, before you're actually reading for sweetness, you're actually listening, you're able to meditate. And there comes a point when you're reading and reading and listening and trying to savor it. That's where John used was savor, trying to savor it, where you come face to face with a choice. I can either stop this right now and say amen and walk away and, I can, and everything can stay in its proper place. My whole life can keep going, just as it was. Or I can come face to face with the fact that either he's saying something I don't want to hear or I'm, I'm hardening my heart because I don't want to get close to him and have him change me. And in that moment, you see that every day becomes repentance. In that moment, you are choosing a little bit more stress and hardness or a little bit more joy and a little bit more freedom. This is what happens. So Peter, Peter's story then comes to us and says, you have to give up the illusions. You have to give up the self-deception. You have to take the risk of full self-awareness and giving God control of who you really are, giving him rights of ownership over what's really going on in your life and your heart. And when you do that, if you turn to Jesus, you will find yourself amazingly free, able to just walk into rooms and just be, able to just walk through life and look at others and not yourself. Where's the rooster crowing right now? Jesus is saying to you, don't double down. Don't do it. Don't run. Because I have freedom waiting for you on the other side of this difficult journey. When the Protestant Reformation swept through, you guys did a thing here, I think. I'm not sure if that's leftovers from it. If it's not, it's pretty cool. If it is, it's pretty cool too. But um, when Protestant churches came, uh, Protestant uh, church, churches became Protestant, they would take, put on the roof a rooster. That's how you knew it was a Protestant church. As if to say, what we do here is open up and be confronted and find that by Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, it's the only way we stand, and we're free. Do you want that freedom? He's beckoning you, and he's beckoning me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for these people who let me go long. I love them. Um, Thank you for the, the freedom you offer, and thank you that the grace remains even when we consistently, consistently, consistently find ourselves doubling down when we shouldn't. Would you soften our hearts and by your Holy Spirit draw us close to you? Would you remind us that Christ awareness is the only thing that when it fills our vision gives us real peace and real joy? Be glorified in us, Father, as we draw close to you intimately, fearfully. Thank you that when we draw near to you, you always draw near to us in love and goodness for your own glory. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.